This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. I think we lose GDP every year. I think America has never realized its highest and best potential uh, because the brilliant ideation, brilliant ideas and, and businesses that could be created that reside in the, in the minds of black and brown people all over this country uh, never reach the marketplace because they don't believe they belong. And so how do we create these safe spaces for companies to fail and fly this, this brilliance that exists? I'm Faith Saley. Welcome back to another season of Real Good. We're so excited to be back into your podcast feeds and in your ears. I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it is to be back in front of this microphone having the conversations you're about to hear. Just a little peek behind the curtain, but in case you don't know, I'm a storyteller by trade. Even when I'm not on this show, I'm meeting people, learning things, and telling other people about the things I've learned. Over the past three seasons, I've grown to look forward to these conversations in a way I don't for anything else. They're enriching, nourishing, and necessary. This show started out because we had a desire to find the bright lights in a dark time, to give the mic to people doing important work for underrepresented communities at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. What we saw was that the problems the folks on the ground were working to solve weren't the result of COVID. They were deep-seated, intergenerational, and intersectional issues that were merely being highlighted by the virus's impact. So we broadened our scope to find people who were working to change the way the world worked for disadvantaged communities, to speak to the people leading the way toward a more equitable future. I don't think many of us thought we would still be in the midst of a pandemic right now. As we're recording this, COVID numbers are on the way down in the U.S., but we're on the downside of a spike even bigger than anything we saw in 2020 or 2021. Sometimes hope can feel like a hard thing to come by these days. But if you seek out the helpers, it's hard not to feel like where we're going is better than where we came from. Let's hear their stories. This week, our guest is Jay Bailey, president and CEO of the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship incubators aren't necessarily a new concept, but they've gone relatively unexamined as a generally positive force for quite a long time. Who exactly are they for? And what exactly should they provide for the people who walk in their doors? For most, it's white men and access to capital, respectively. For Jay Bailey, it's black men and women of all backgrounds, and it's community, not just capital. I sat down with Jay and U.S. Bank Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer Greg Cunningham to discuss the impacts that mindset shift has. Greg Cunningham, am I seeing you for the first time in an office? I, you know, I, I think so. I think this is the first time. I mean, every other time I was in like my son's bedroom or yeah. there was like a Snoopy doll or something in the background. Yeah. So I'm trying to look official now. You, you look very official, but you're not wearing a tie, which is a relief. I, I, I like, I know yeah. Greg, that you keep it real and this is not, we're just not going to go corporate. You're not going to use words that. like ideate and synergize on me. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually felt a little bit funny even putting a jacket on faith, but I had another meeting before this. And so normally, you know, I actually might just take the jacket off and go like full polo on you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Greg, the last time we chatted, you kind of summed up how you were feeling in one word. Do you remember what that word was? Um, I don't. Did I say fortified? What did I say? I don't remember. Ooh, that's that's a good that? one. We talked at the end of last spring. We talked at the in spring of 2021. And mm -hmm. um, and, you know tensions, challenges, things were still running yeah. high, not like all that stuff is behind us. And you told me that the word that you felt described uh, what was going on for you was languishing. Yes. Yes. Now I do remember that in the spring, I would say now fortified is, a, is, a, is probably a better description. I'm, I'm definitely fortified faith by the, you know, the, the work, the the support, the reaction from the community to what we're doing, 
to what I'm doing here, certainly at U.S. Bank, and but also personally, I just feel this notion of like there's a bit of um, I don't know optimism, particularly here in Minneapolis, right? Which we talked about so many times, you know, being here in the in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, and you know, literally, you know, his uh, he was killed literally less than three miles from where I'm sitting right now. Um, you know, there's a bit of uh, coming together and the collaboration that's happening that um, I think I'm feeling fortified would be the word I'd use now. That also has this feeling of such forward momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're leaning forward. Like it's, you know, I, it's the only path, right? Like we have to sort of embrace all of this 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 history and the nuance of you know, we've talked about this so many times you and I you know we've got to embrace the complexity and the nuance and the honesty of of the history but like how do we move forward in this much more dynamic way is the stuff that we're really wor- working really hard on I'm excited about the guest you're going to bring on in a minute um, because he's a big part of that story and how we're planning to move forward in a in a really dynamic way that that's exactly right, Jay Bailey. I I know I know you're listening to this because you're nodding your head and you're really you're really focused on forward movement in in business and in kind of uh, the experience that black entrepreneurs have in this world. I think we lose GDP every year. I think America has never realized its highest and best potential. Uh, because the brilliant ideation, the brilliant ideas and, and businesses that could be created that reside in the, in the minds of black and brown people all over this country uh, never reach the marketplace because they don't believe they belong. And so how do we create these safe spaces for companies to fail and fly this, this brilliance that exists? Um, I talk about innovation and I say, hey, find me somebody more innovative on the planet than a single mother with two kids making 17000 a year. You're not going to be able to. Yes. And so with that, what if she had the pathway? What if she had the access opportunity exposure? What if she believed that her ideas matter? How much better would we be as a society, as a community, as a country, as a world, if we were able to create those swim lanes, those pathways to prosperity? Um, And that's why I'm so really focused. And I think that the work that we're doing, uh, even the work that we're doing together, Greg, uh, it's going to provide mm-hmm. a lot of pathways for a lot of people. So let's back up a little because we hear what ignites you. We hear what your vision and your passion is. But um, folks may not know who you are, Jay Bailey. You are the head of the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs. And what would you say you do? What does that mean? Wow. I'm the keeper of a legacy. I mean, it's hard to talk about the the work that we do without talking a little bit about the yes. man. Uh, Herman Russell was one of the most prolific entrepreneurs this city has ever produced. And your city is? Uh, this is the brother that built half of our Atlanta. state. Atlanta. I'm sorry, listeners. Atlanta, and- Georgia. The world champion. <laughs> Atlanta. Everyone needs Georgia. to know that <clears throat> Jay Bailey has an Atlanta Braves hat. I'm sorry. Did I get the hat in? Did I get the that's hat a really, in the That's a actually a really dope Braves hat, too. Oh, brother. Absolutely. I keep I keep them on stat. I mean, I have a stock of them, brother. So I'll That's send you one. one. Um, mm. It's 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 that it's Herman Russell was a savant. He spoke with severe speech impediment. But if you got to think about a black man over 74 years ago, uh, building half of our skyline, the brother had a pool inside his house in, in the 60s when he was 33, yeah. uh, where a young Dr. King used to go over and get away from the world and swim. And for the the space that I'm in right now, for context, think of a black man 74 years ago at a time where they were still lynching brothers for thinking too much of themselves, having the audacity to build a headquarter building that's a full city block wide and 50,000 square feet with his name on it. Um, Mm. Carrying that legacy forward there where it becomes the Russell Innovation Center for entrepreneurs, uh, the largest center in the world dedicated to growing, scaling, developing black businesses. Um, We are in the business of of building businesses. And uh, we'll get into the conversation, but this is mission-driven work. This is assignment. It's not a job. And, uh, you know, for what we're embodying here in Atlanta, bringing all of these pieces together, uh, we really want to live at the nexus of access, opportunity, and exposure. 
because I think the only difference between the north side of the tracks and the south side of the tracks is just literally access, opportunity, and exposure. And, and Faith, I got to I got to jump in because both of you have, um, you know, obviously being born and raised in in Atlanta and having history there, and uh, me just having to gone gone to school there. A shout out to Clark Atlanta University, go Panthers! Um, but I, I think it's important to talk about the the significance of Atlanta. Um, being a city that is the first time I had ever really seen a true black middle class is when I moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I think Atlanta is truly the blueprint for how, you know, many of these disparities that we're talking about. And, and Jay and I are very passionate about this notion of of uh, closing racial wealth gaps and racial wealth disparities. You know, I grew up in Atlanta in the 80s. And do you does either of you remember what the city's kind of strange, unforgettable slogan was in the 80s. Do y'all remember? It was too busy to hate. It was Atlanta. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, which is which is pretty catchy. It's also has like a very strong negative word in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, And and I feel like Atlanta's story and you can you can tell us more about that, Jay, but I feel like Atlanta's Mm -hmm. story is moved so much more away from hate to hope. I think that, that Atlanta and, and love and agree with everything that Greg said, but I think that is also the root of the issue that if Atlanta is the best case scenario, you've got to also realize that Atlanta gets a lot of pub as the black Mecca, but we are still the worst city in the country for income inequality. We're the worst city in the country for economic immobility. What? Uh, a child born mm-hmm. in poverty in Atlanta, Georgia, has less than a 4% chance of reaching the middle class. So can we mm-hmm. pause there? Wait, Jay, sure. why? Do we know why? So there, there are huge disparities. So when, when Greg talked about the black middle class, you know, that middle class is eroding. And there's a very severe line around the haves and the have-nots. Um, when you start to talk about automation, when you start to talk about factories closing, when you start to talk about Atlanta in the 80s being a much smaller city, um, there are a lot of factors to that contribute to poverty being at the heart of every conversation that we need to have. And there's also a very courageous conversation we need to have about race. In this city, yeah. if you're afraid to talk about race, you're being intellectually disingenuous in your approach to move the needle. You, if we talk about class in the city, we get race for free. Um, in the city of Atlanta, there are no poor. I'm sorry. That is, that is such a good line. It's that's (laughs) everywhere. We're freestyling around here. (laughs) No, I'm never going to forget that. If you talk about class, you get race for free. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all mixed in. And that part is where we have to have the hard conversations and why the Russell Center, we focus on black entrepreneurs. It's not from a, um, and an emotional standpoint, I'm a capitalist mm-hmm. and I look at it like an economist. If we're 54% of the population, but 98% of the poverty in the city of Atlanta, there are no poor white neighborhoods in the city limits of Atlanta. There are no failing Latino schools in the Atlanta public school system. Almost huh. exclusively the poverty is black. And so what would be the catalytic impact of taking 15, 20% of that number and supercharging it, weaponizing it, increasing that household income and wealth, the ability to grow businesses, to scale businesses. Um, There's a long conversation, but we're very narrowly focused on doing our part to change those demographics. And uh, it keeps us busy and will always keep us at our North Star because those numbers must change. So the Russell Center, it's it's a place. It's a really big place. It's it's 54,000 square feet right? Designed to mm-hmm. inspire ideas and, and create jobs. It's, it's an innovation space quite literally, but how, how do people come to you who already maybe have a very small company or as Greg pointed out, maybe a, a one person company and, and say, help us grow. It's where we want to really focus Um, I got into this work to really be disruptive of the current incubator accelerator model uh, that takes a business that's already doing a million in revenue and tries to get them to two to five. I think incrementally, just like Greg said, what is the power of taking that company that's doing 200,000 in revenue, 50,000 in revenue and getting to 600,000 in revenue? 
That's two jobs created in the community. Uh, that's increased wealth in that community. That's increased hope in that community. That's an increased role model and exposure in that community. And there's really no area servicing that population. When I first took the job, Faith, I paneled 1,500 Black entrepreneurs to really ask what were their greatest needs. I thought that access to capital would be overabundantly number one, and it wasn't. It was community. Community. Mm -hmm. If you put me in the right room with the right people, Mm -hmm. with the right connectivity and the right access, access to capital is just, it's academic at that point. I'll find the access to capital. And to Greg's point about that needing the contract, we also need to take the step before before that, uh, because I tell people all the time, I'm only in two businesses. I'm in the readiness business and I'm in the access business. Our job Mm -hmm. is to create the platform to make sure that a company is U.S. bank ready before Mm -hmm. I take them to Greg. And but when when they're ready, I can make the phone call to Greg as the institution that provides that connectivity to all of these organizations that can provide that contract. We all lose. I'm not a firm believer in social promotion. You take a kid in third grade that can't read and you promote them to fourth grade. You've done done them no service. I got to make sure that that kid can read before I move them along the continuum. And I got to make sure that company is at a point of readiness to succeed with as a customer with us. I mean, as a supplier at us bank and can sustain. And that's our role. Is that, is that part, it, it sounds like you're describing your personal model. Let me try that again. It sounds like you're describing your personal motto, which I understand is build as we climb. Ah, yes. It's a derivative of a very well-known slogan, lifting as we climb. Um, but lifting as we climb implies that every time I need to pull someone up, I got to be there to extend the hand. Build as we climb is if we build the mechanisms, if we build the staircase, generations yet unborn, people that I will never meet will be able to benefit from that staircase that was built in perpetuity. I don't have to be there actively, but we put systems in place that combat systems. So as we continue to grow, we're building things to, you know, to unlock potential for, you know, seven generations yet unborn. So that piece is what I'm most excited about the Russell Center. And that again, Mr. Russell created this space 74 years ago. And here we sit on mm-hmm. this podcast in our podcast mm-hmm. studio talking now. He planted seeds that grew trees whose shade he never got to sit under. But because of his mm-hmm. efforts, what he built, we're still crossing barriers because of what he built. And he doesn't even have to be actively here on earth. You know, so much of the work that you both do is built on that kind of long-term commitment. I mean, you have you have that in yeah. common, right, Greg? Well, we you know, it, it's so it's such an interesting question, Faith. The short answer is yes. And, you know, what's really powerful about that is we actually just completed some research where we're actually researching how to take our wealth management practice and help build help build wealth mm. in the black community. One of the insights from this wealth study that we just did, Faith, was this notion of um Black affluent uh, customers in particular, um, almost eight to one, feel a greater sense of community and passing wealth on to the next generation than any other group, Mm. right? Mm. And so that notion of, you know, and Jay, what you're talking about and how we are standing on the shoulders of giants is something that is ingrained in us and it's, it's instinctual and intuitive and we, we just have a natural sense that the generation before us had it much harder than we do. I love this. If you haven't had any opportunity, I love speaking of Atlanta. Um, former Ambassador Andrew Young, I, I, I remember reading his book. It's called An Easy Burden. And he mm. talked about, you know, he was asked by somebody like, how did you how did you and Dr. King just keep going? How did you do the work? And mm. people were hitting you in the head with bricks and like doing. And he was like, we just thought about the generate how hard the generation before us had it. And whose shoulders we were standing at, and and it therefore became a really easy burden. And so this notion of community translates, you know, faith into how we how we show up and how do we continue those legacies and pass that on um, generationally. Jay, the Russell Center has worked with four thousand plus entrepreneurs. Can you tell us about some of the businesses oh. that get you really excited, like some of your favorite success stories? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, uh, we're we're just getting started, and it's powerful. We've had. So many successes. I, I vastly underestimated, Greg, that power of community. 
mm-hmm. uh, faith before we were even built out. When we were just a rusty, dusty, there were wires hanging everywhere. There was no sheetrock up. We were still seeing 1,000 to 1,500 people a week walk through our doors because what? people needed that safe space. They felt like this was theirs. What do they come in and say? There are very few centers that are owned by the community that they serve. If they had to just come in and sit down and have a conversation, we would do workshops under lamp lights. Uh, we would tour the facility and help people see the vision of what we were going to build together. So when you think about companies like Brown Toy Box, uh, who was here when we had nothing, but now she's celebrating growth even beyond the center. And she's in 1900 Target stores around the country. What is Brown Toy Box? So she has a STEM focused toy company um, because she's a firm believer you become what you behold. So to see black scientists in figurines and action figures and games and puzzles, uh, STEM focused learning, but seeing value and beauty in your own reflection is a big deal. And she's created a platform we're so happy for or symphony chips that started out, you know, doing 20 cases per month out of the back of his trunk. And now he's doing 20,000 cases per month. Now these are potato chips, Walmart, not poker chips, right? True, with some of the best potato chips you're ever going to taste. Um, you I know, believe there you. Are, there there really, are stories I'm like I'm hungry. Like, I want <laughs> no doubt. Let's. Oh, I'll send you both a case of Symphony chips, and it'll change your life. Um, there there's stories like FS360. Um, and this is what I do love about the center. We're walking the talk. In the past three years, we spent north of six million dollars with the companies that we support. We walk the talk. So when you come to the center, our AV, our our construction, our general contractor, the guy that set up this booth that I'm in right now, uh, the furniture that we've had fabricated, our low voltage, our our Wi-Fi is all. So, I mean, it's all done by our stakeholder companies. We're working to create this circular economy. So when a dollar drops into this community, it never leaves. Everything from the water that I'm drinking The snacks that we serve come from entrepreneurs that we serve. And so, you know, we want to go from our 127 full-time entrepreneurs that we now have that we call stakeholders at a thousand entrepreneurs under that same community, that same culture, that same covenant. I think we experience a tipping point and that is the goal. Jay is the rice center. um, It is either the largest or certainly one of the largest hubs for entrepreneurship in this work in the country. Am I right about that or? Yeah, for black entrepreneurs, for sure. Black entrepreneurs, that's what I meant, sorry. Yeah, Yeah, there are larger places, like we have the Atlanta Tech Village in in Atlanta that's a little bit larger. Shout out to David Cummings, you're just a little bit larger. Uh, But (laughs) when we're specifically focused on black entrepreneurship, we are the largest in the world. And I think that for us to be able to have a debt-free space um, that is owned and controlled by the people that it serves, that was built by a black entrepreneur. Um, again, this safe space for black entrepreneurs to fail and fly, to feel like they belong. It's part of the magic that we're able to offer. And I've not seen anybody else in the country that's able to do that as well. I love those two words together, fail and fly. I love mm. that. And I got to tell you, Jay, I went to the website for the Russell Center and I watched this video called It's a New Day, where you're you're just walking in a black hoodie that says (laughs) wealth lives here. And then (laughs) and then we meet your team and it's Barunda and Muhammad and Brittany and Shantae and Nathan. And they turn to the camera and they're in their hoodies and their arms are crossed. And it is so not corporate and it's so fierce and fired up. And then you say, we're launching a new model for people to be vulnerable and hone their strengths. And I actually Mm. went and like rewound it and was like, did he just say vulnerable and strengths like side by side? And I Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, that's like talking Greg Cunningham language, right? That's mm-hmm. that's really powerful to align fail, fly and vulnerability and strength. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. I think that's the model. And that video was done by one of our rice stakeholders. So we're walking and talking in every regard. Shout out to Pineapple Cut uh, Pictures who did that video. Um, it's that. Here's what I know. I've talked to lots of black entrepreneurs that have gone through incubators and accelerators around the country. 
Um, and in many cases, when you see someone that looks like me that's excelling and I go to a conference in my industry, I'm one, uh, I'm one, if not just a very few in the crowd. Oftentimes I got to go and I got to feel that I'm, I'm got to be twice as sharp, twice as smart, twice as on point and can't appear to not know. I know one thing for sure. If you can't be vulnerable, you can't learn, you can't grow. Amen. And if we're not in, put in places where we can be vulnerable, where we can take the armor off, where we don't have to be the standard bearer for our entire race, we can actually make mistakes and raise our hand and say, we don't know. And I need help. And I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. That whole entrepreneur construct, I think, is as important as any curriculum that we'll create, uh, focusing on the anxiety, the loneliness, the depression, all the things that go into being an entrepreneur. Um, and with I, that vulnerability, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, I find it so illuminating to be reminded that if you are a black entrepreneur who is usually surrounded by mostly white people, then yeah, you don't want to be the person who publicly makes a mistake, right? Or quote unquote fails, right? And and, and so what be. you're doing, right, you, you can't, you can't afford to be. So what you're doing is putting black entrepreneurs among all these other black entrepreneurs. So, so no, nobody notices. So that, so that failure on the way to success is simply expected. It's um, shout out to all of our HBCUs around the country. It's kind of where I, I stole my model. Uh, Greg, you said you went to Clark, correct? Yes, sir. Here's what I know about Clark Atlanta University. They guess they have an incredible homecoming. And if we went to homecoming, the three of us next year, you know, post COVID, they're going to be thousands upon thousands of alums celebrating their matriculation. We could ask a hundred alums one question, or we could ask Greg blindly talk for two minutes about your experience at Clark. <laughs> and I guarantee Craig would start talking about his friends and all this other stuff, but he wouldn't speak a word about any curriculum or syllabus. Come and on. that's not what was transformational for them. Yes. I think far too often we create programs to be informational and we don't focus enough time on being transformational. And that has everything to do with community culture covenant. Uh, that has everything to do with how Clark Atlanta makes you made you feel then and how it makes you feel now. Mm. Um, and so that part, if we take culture, community covenant, wrap it around the world-class curriculum, world-class instructors and build that community faith where yes, all it simply takes is somebody to look at you and say, man, that's going to work. Because when Greg went to Clark, he saw the valedictorian look like him. He saw the yeah. president of this club look like him. He saw the president of the university look like him. He saw the dean of this school look like him. The provost of the school looked like him. And it right. instilled in him this belief that anything was possible for someone that looked like him. Show me a figure in today's television, film, anything that's a black multi-billionaire outside of like the real billionaires. But let's talk about this characters that are displayed how often do our children get to see their value in their own reflection their face on the face of success and so these spaces that create that model are powerful clark will always have a special place in, in greg's heart and this was without me or him talking about it because of what he was able to experience and how he was able to see himself in the faces of others I, take them to church, Jay. Take them to church. <laughs> take them to church, Jay. Take them to church. I, Faith, before you before you jump in on it, before you jump on that, because I really I still want to hear what you're going to ask, because because I know you and I know it's going to be like something crazy good. Um, but I also I, I just had this conversation earlier today with somebody, and I have a really uh, speaking of black entrepreneurs, a a, a really good uh, friend of the banks, um, an entrepreneur out of Chicago named Robert Blackwell. He says this all the time. And it's related to what Jay is saying. It's like you're hard pressed to name a black, you know, billionaire that's not um, that's not in sports or entertainment. Yep. Like you'd have to really think about it. Like you can't you can't say you can't say Oprah. You can't say Robert Johnson. You can't you know you can say Robert Smith. But you you actually have to really think about it. And I think this work you know that Jay is doing. It's like kids need to see that careers in STEM and entrepreneurship and this notion of, you know, not only saving, but investing and understanding how money and economics works and how it works to our advantage, 
that you can't just, mm-hmm. you actually have to invest and you've got to be invested in the economy and the economic growth of the economy in order to build wealth. I think all of these things are so related, which is why this relationship is so important to us at the bank and working with people like Jay who just sort of get it and understand, you know, the pathways, you know, to success for our community lead through this self-determination and entrepreneurship with support from the business community, with mm-hmm. support from industries like the banking community who have a history of keeping us out systemically keeping us out of the banking system and the financial system. We need those systems to acknowledge that history, but we actually have to come forward in a much more intentional way. It just, it's such, what you're saying, man, is so incredibly powerful and, and so tied to what we're, we, we deem to be really important in this. I want to know why you're so inspirational, Jay. And, and that means we, what I'm not inspirational. Greg, I, you just, <laughs> Greg, you, Wait, you I just, and I that was like some of my best you, stuff right there too. Hey, that bro, was some I was about of my, my bag. In my, in my, hey, brother, in my book, you're cooking, man. I, I'm, I'm inspired. Thank you, man. I, you know, Greg, Faith, I thought we were good too. This take, is my partner, Jay. Greg, this is my partner right now. <laughs> Greg, you take me to church every time we talk. Okay, good. Yeah. Good recovery. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I have seen Raphael Warnock preach at Ebenezer, and you still take me to church. So, um, awesome. Right, Amen. Amen. So, <laughs> no, but Jay. Senator Warnock uh, married us, by the way. Are you Shout serious? Out, Doc. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Yeah. That's good. Um, but no, there was a question. Well, so you won a Points of Light Award, Jay, and I was reading about you on their website. And, and there's this part of your origin story, quote, impressed by his barber's flashy Mustang, 11-year-old James J. Oh, Bailey determined, mm-hmm, 11-year-old Jay Bailey determined he, too, would become an entrepreneur and fast. So I want to know how that wow. kid became who you are now. This is scary. That's like deep down research and recon. It's real. And I mean, if I'll take some license to tell the story right now, because it is, you ask, like, how am I inspirational? It's just I'm not afraid to fail. Like, there is no floor. I've been at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, I started my first business at 12. But the reason that started is because I was riding my bike to the barbershop. I was a horrible student. I've already told you that. I treated school like construction work at three o'clock. Bell ring. Here's my hat. Give me my lunch pail. I'm out. But I was always hustling. I was always making popsicles and ice trays. I, I had it so cold, y'all. I used to to charge people 50 cents to fight in my backyard so they wouldn't get caught in the front. <gasps> oh um, I'm riding my, my bike to the barbershop. Oh, yeah. So I'm riding my bike to the barbershop. And then you could have put a Ferrari next to a Bentley next to a Mercedes. And I, I would have taken a Mustang GT 5.0 every day of the week. It was my dream car. And here I pull up to the barbershop on my bike and I see a black on black convertible Mustang GT parked illegally in front of the barbershop, throw my bike down, run into the barbershop. I'm 11 and I scream out, Who, whose car is that? <laughs> my barber kind of gives me the universal black man symbol for that's me. Give me a little head nod. <laughs> but because of where I was from, shout out to the deck, South DeKalb County, Glenwood Road. I thought he was a drug dealer. Who else would have the kind of money to buy that kind of car? So I hop in his chair, and as a matter of fact, as I'm asking about the weather, I'm like, John, I didn't know you were a dope boy. He screamed at me, dropped the big F word on me, shut the F up and turn around. Count how many chairs you see in this shop. So I don't know, 10. says, well, each one of these barbers pays me $50 a week to cut hair in my shop. Do the math, Jay, you're smart. He said, hold on. Well, as I started to count, okay, one, two. He said, no, before you finish, I have two more shops just like this. Finish the math. So when little Jay started going zero, 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 comma, Zero, he said it. He said, boy, I'm an entrepreneur. What you need to do is go find you something you love and go make money doing it. That little whisper in that 11-year-old kid's ear literally changed my trajectory forever. He probably never even thought a second thought about it. But my bike ride home, I was on fire. McDonald's, who owns McDonald's? Public li- Who owns the library? Uh, uh, who owns this tire shop? Mom, dad, do we own our house? We do? Self-esteem, self-confidence is built up. Don't cross my yard right now because this is our grass. Pride and ownership. Nobody had ever given me the word entrepreneurship, but it's kind of what it had always been. And certainly nobody had ever talked to me about ownership. And once I understood that concept of ownership, I never let it go. So I started my first business at 12. 
bought my first house at 19, made my first million at 23. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What'd you sell when you were 12? So 12 was car stereo equipment, the house of boom, H the house of mm. B O O M. I was enamored by nice. car stereo equipment. Uh, so Damn. there's a longer story for another time on how that got me to the university of Georgia. Cause I wouldn't have gone to college had it not been for the business because my aspiration to be successful in business meant my need for education. Because if I'm thinking about ohms and wattage and speaker loads, et cetera, that'd be called STEM education today. So my need right. was about aspiration. When you show up at 19 to buy a house, maybe you bought it for cash, but did you show up as a 19 year old young black man asking for a mortgage? And how did that go? So the, the deeper story on that, when you talked about like inspiration, uh, I believe loss creates leaders. And I've had a tremendous amount of losses. The reason I bought the house, my mother pet died my sophomore year of college. And I didn't I'm have a sorry. home to go home to the Chris for Christmas. And so mm -hmm. I literally bought a home because I was always entrepreneurial. I just placed the greatest fraternity on the known demand on the face of the earth. Alpha Phi Alpha, shout out to all my brothers. Uh, but I knew that I could buy a four bedroom house and rent out three bedrooms that I could make the rent because I didn't even know what a mortgage was. I literally walked into Norwest Mortgage, which was acquired by Wells Fargo. But I asked the secretary how many houses they had for sale because I knew that little about real estate. They all laughed at me, sure. But they got me hooked up with a banker, a real estate agent, and I bought my first home. I cash floated by renting out three bedrooms and I stayed in the finished out basement. Um, this is at 19? This is at 19. So I had to grow up really quickly, Greg. I had a very atypical yeah. college experience. And, yeah. but because of that, the losses that occurred after that, um, there was a deep depression that set in. I was making a ton of money. Like I said, I made my first million by the time I was 22, 23, maybe. Um, but I lost everything by the time I was 28. I went from living in a 10,000 square foot home to literally living in a nine by nine storage unit on Mountain Industrial Boulevard in Tucker, Georgia. Um, I used to take my showers at the LA wow. fitness up at La Vista, on La Vista road. What happened? And so it was there that I, well, that's it though. The, the market tanked. Everybody remember the great 2008 yeah. and even before then, as it started to slide and for a kid that didn't understand the real estate market at depth, because I had no mentors, no role models back to your point, Greg earlier, I didn't have access. Yes. I just had hustle. Right. And you weren't going to outwork me. Mm. And at the time the market was so flush that anybody that had commitment could make a little cash but could they sustain it? And I was not in that category. So when the bottom fell out and I had to exit all the properties and back to our point earlier about being vulnerable, bankruptcy was so taboo in my community that I could never do that, right? So I had to sell at losses. And mm -hmm. literally, if you're losing 200, $300,000 a clip, I don't care if you have four, five, six million in the bank, it goes away very quickly. And so as I was sitting in that nine by nine, I really realized by the world standards, I was successful had all the cars, all the clothes, all the houses, but I had zero significance. I had done nothing to put a dent in this world. And once I really started to shift towards significance, everything started to line up. I got it all back. You know, I got the family, the things that even meant more than money. Um, and I was vulnerable at that point to lean into my depression, uh, to lean into my hurt, my losses, and really funnel and channel it towards doing good for other people. And so, uh, so yeah, no, that, that, that Mustang story is a real one, but it set me on a trajectory of entrepreneurship simply back to what we were saying earlier, Greg, simply because I had a role model that wasn't a mentor. He didn't spend time with me. He didn't tell me how mm -hmm. to build a business. He literally just whispered in my ear the opportunity and the possibility of something. And it made all the difference. Each one, each one, reach one, right? We, uh, my brother, it, you know, absolutely. Uh, we've actually we've actually taken that notion of each one reach one and thought about it from a even our own employees here at the bank Jay and how do we create pathways to opportunity and leadership for some of our employees who actually work in the bank um, mm. but put them on a path towards becoming wealth advisors and so some of our wealth advisors um, the program is actually called each one reach one uh, it's reaching back to find black bankers. Um, who work in our branches and actually coaching, supporting, creating that sense of community for them to become wealth advisors um, to other mm -hmm. people in our community. Mm -hmm. So that that next Jay Bailey, who's 19, who's got incredible hustle, um, who's got all the talent in the world, 
you know, actually has someone who looks like him or her um, in, you know, in the bank who understands her circumstance, understands her lived experience and can provide the necessary support and guidance um, so that they don't suffer that kind of financial loss that you talked about. Right. Like it's 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 all sort of it comes together, man. I, I the story is amazing yeah. and incredible. Yeah. I just love um, your willingness to share. And I'm even more proud of our partnership after hearing what you just shared. Oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot in that book, brother, that's not written yet, but it, it ain't rocket science, guys. Doctors become doctors because they see other doctors. Lawyers become lawyers because they see other, Mr. Russell became a plasterer. Why? Because his daddy was a plasterer. It is you become what you behold. You become what you behold. And if that banker sees a trajectory to become a wealth advisor or senior executive, because I guarantee if you were black in banking 25 years ago, you didn't have any C-suite leaders that you could look up to and aspire to. You know, that part is powerful. I never want to under underrepresent or underestimate the power of seeing your reflection. And that's why companies like Brown Toy Box or Beautifully Curly Me that are here in the Russell Center that build toys that look like the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a daughter. It's changed my life. I have a four month old daughter at home and everything has changed mm-hmm. when I start thinking about legacy and position and my place in the world and how it all works. Mazel tov, Jay. Your daughter is Sage, right? Oh, yeah. You have done your research. Yeah. Sage Milan yeah. Bailey. Well, indeed. That's beautiful. Um, we're going to get to the U.S. Bank partnership. But before we do that. <laughs> we didn't we did talk about that at No, I mean, we are organically. This is still the opening, This is still the opening. There's more to say. This is the Yeah, exactly. This is a warm-up. Are we Cheers. recording? Um, Let's rock and roll. Yeah. Bit, you know, there were, there was... There was something you said a while back that I've been I've been just wanting to it was so moving to me. So so Jay, you mentioned, you know, a single mother with two kids making $17,000 a year. Like who's more resourceful than that? Who's more of an entrepreneur on her feet than that? Is mm. is the Russell Center a place where a single mother with what what does she need? Does she need an idea? Well, if she walked in and you already mm-hmm. know this this lady makes her world run. Uh, what could she do there and what could you do for her and with her? Back to the shout out to HBCUs. We stole the model unapologetically because it's one of the best models in the world. Uh, HBCU can take a freshman that knows nothing. Uh, but on that same campus has sophomores, juniors, seniors, graduate program, Ph.D. Um, so our model is called Big Ideas, Inspire, Develop, Execute, Accelerate, Scale. It's designed to help people along the continuum. So you don't have to be afraid of not knowing anything. In the Inspire stage, it's all about going from just curiosity about entrepreneurship to really honing a concept. Is there a big problem that you need to solve for the world? In the develop stage, it's about, okay, I got a concept. How do I build a company around it? Execute, it's all about your customer. Customer discovery. Can I find a thing? Can I communicate my value? Can I have a creative value? Uh, and accelerate. It's all about capacity building. Now that you found your customer, how do you find more? And at scale, now that we're looking at this repeatable business model that can grow and scale. Here's the thing, though. Back to what I said earlier about social promotion. You can't take a third grader and just push him into fourth grade if he doesn't know how to read. Because if you never learn how to read, he can't read to learn. And you're doing no one any good by doing that. So just like in our platform, you may stay and you master, you have a certain level of mastery and demonstrated acumen before you move to the next stage. Because I think that's one of the ways that we erode well in the way where we take an idea, we really believe in it and we go out to the marketplace unready and uncocked without the foundational constructs to build success on. And we blow our life savings, leverage our house to the hilt. Mm. And now we're in a worse position than when we started. But if we had that community of support that could help us through the steps of building a business, that single mother with two kids can say, hey, I've always had this idea. And we've got the tools and the relationships and the partnerships, Greg, Mm -hmm. to help her have the pieces necessary to mitigate those pitfalls, to mitigate those blind spots. And it's not guaranteeing success, but we're making sure that you have all the tools necessary to compete and have a fair shot at success. How did the partnership between the Russell Center and U.S. Bank start? You know, it's um, I'm trying to think where it started. I think it started. Uh, I think I was asked to come talk to one of the black resource groups. Greg. Yeah. I think that was maybe my first interaction with the bank. 
And, and let me, yes, and let me um, let me say that it, because uh, I have to give a, a special, special shout out to, um, it's our uh, Elevon division of U.S. Bank, which is a, a faith, a subsidiary of the bank, a, um, one of our uh, payments uh, processing uh, solutions organization. And under uh, leadership of Jamie Walker and Joe Myers and Tara Wallace, you know, they really um, were the ones who spearheaded the relationship and the interaction with Jay and Rice and brought it to me um, and others and said, hey, we think this is something that's really important. Um, it's connected to the access commitment um, that the bank um, had recently launched. And we think this is a really important thing, not only for us here in Atlanta, um, but also, you know, serves a greater purpose of supporting entrepreneurs. So I just want to make sure we give ample credit and a shout out to my my colleagues at Elevon and um, and all the work that they did to bring this partnership to us to the organization. So this year, U.S. Bank donated four hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the Russell Center, and and U.S. Bank employees are are set up to provide on site counsel and guidance. Is that right? I mean, I, I, it it doesn't stop there, and that was probably what I was about to go into earlier. It's been really. Uh, amazing. The partnership, how it's really evolved into what true partnership looks like. Um, that's walking the talk. That's having me on right now to have this conversation. It's Tara and the whole team coming by and talking to entrepreneurs in the space. It's Jamie and the whole crew doing a block party and, and yes. elevating entrepreneurs and buying their stuff and supporting their businesses. I mean, it is the full carte blanche partnership end to end, time, talent, and treasure. Um, and it's just getting started. Uh, U.S. Bank will have a physical boardroom in the center yes. with their name uh, front and center to say, hey, we believe in the community. We're invested in the community and we want to create amazing spaces for you to to be a boss. You got to feel like a boss mm -hmm. and you got to create spaces that make you feel like a boss. Mm -hmm. So they've invested in a space that will do that. Uh, but also what you were talking about most earlier, Greg, when you're talking about going from that one employee to two. Yeah. When you're talking about mm. payment systems and wealth management and banking products and services, those that access point to greater efficiencies built into your business. Uh, my ability to now take a credit card and process payments in a way that I did yes. for my direct-to-consumer marketplace company. Like all of that ties into a full-fledged, well-rounded partnership that's rooted in really moving the needle rather than just kind of this philanthropic charity donation. Come on. I'm really excited about what we will do what we've already done and we've not even really begun yet. So that part's exciting. If you ever catch the video, uh, Faith, uh, they did a, a, a rice, the block or yeah. rice rocks, the block or something. Yes. Uh, I was on paternity leave, but I got to watch the video and it's amazing. They do the drone shot and they see the community and these businesses and the smiles on the faces of the owners. Cause they got their custom signs and a custom tent. Like it's an above and beyond effort. Uh, for a relatively new relationship. And if this is any indication of where we're going, I'm excited. And we should say RICE is an acronym for the Russell Center for Innovation mm -hmm. for, wait, I'm going to get the whole thing. For We should say RICE is an acronym Innovation for Center Russell. For Entrepreneurs. Thank yep. you very much. Right. Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And you kind of dig into that RICE metaphor a little bit. We do. I mean, there's a there's a poem out there written by one of our interns that I could never recite. And it's powerful. But it talks about how rice has sustained communities for centuries, for generations. Uh, what brings a family together more than food uh, like this thing where it feeds entrepreneurs and gives them the sustenance they need to survive and thrive. Um, so there's a deep metaphor for rice and how we're rice to the community. But even our name changed to become the Russell Innovation Center for entrepreneurs. A lot of entrepreneurship and innovation centers exist, but we're really here for the entrepreneur. And we wanted to put them squarely in the center of our focus, certainly even in our name. When the partnership was announced, Jay, you said black entrepreneurs require more than symbols of hope at this critical time. They need institutions mm. to manufacture it. And, and mm. Rice and U.S. Bank are institutions what mm -hmm. role do institutions play in the closing of opportunity gaps for black businesses? What, wh where are some falling short to all, as well? And what can they do to follow your lead? I think that they close the opportunity gap. They close the exposure gap. They close the relationship gap. 
like USB, U.S. Bank, not only are they uh, a large financial institution, but they got legal, they've got accounting, they've got marketing within their institutions. They've got this expert subject matter that can pour into communities. They've got connectivity through all of their customer base to other large companies and other suppliers, the people that need suppliers. Like there are these, these interwoven ways that we can be uh, these conduits to opportunity for folks. Again, what we said earlier, it's about access. And institutions that are really designed to serve are really focused on access. Sure, they've got to sell a product. Sure, they got to be profitable. But if they're a portal to prosperity for someone, now they're just not a, 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 a profit-driven bank. They're a mission-driven bank. And that keeps a customer around for 10, 15, 20 years of lifetime more so than transactional. Say that. And I- Greg, I want to give you a chance to brag. I mean, is there something that U.S. Bank what do you see y'all doing, y'all being U.S. Bank, mm-hmm. that other institutions aren't doing? It's, it's really simple, Faith. I think it's, it's focusing on outcomes versus activities because none of this matters, Faith, if we aren't helping that single mother entrepreneur that Jay talked about earlier, if we're not helping her grow her business, um, helping her scale her business, helping her make payroll um, then it's it. Then we're not really fulfilling um, our promise, and so for me, we have to be very clear. And what we're doing is being very clear about what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve, and how will we know if we've achieved them. And what that means is being really transparent about having key goals and metrics that we are willing to share um, with people. Um, and that's a really big part of the work that we're doing right now is thinking about how do all of these activities lead to very specific outcomes that we are trying to affect in these communities? And how will we know if we've achieved them or not? Um, and so this what we're what we're calling in a very common phrase, this theory of change is all about understanding how your resources are actually driving outcomes. What's the return? on that investment, and I mean social return. I don't mean profitability. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's good for business. It's the right thing to do. We're in the business of, if we don't make a profit, then we can't support you know organizations like Rice and these small businesses, so that's a part of it. But the bigger aspiration is to fulfill our purpose as an organization to power human potential. Our job, my job within the role that I lead at the bank is to make sure that that's true for every single one of our stakeholders. And so what we are doing and what we are focused on is not about activity. It's about what are the outcomes? Are we creating that one more job? Are we supporting these small businesses? And is their business growing? You know, our communities, are we closing that education gap that Jay talked about? Are we seeing home ownership gaps in this country? You know, 74% of white households in this country own their own home faith. That number is 44% for black households. Home ownership is the number one way that wealth gets transferred in this country. So are we seeing those gaps um, begin to close? That's the stuff that we're focused on. The last time we talked, you you were telling me about access commitment yeah. at U.S. Bank. And it, I mean, it's a it's a broad commitment to aim to close the 10 to 1 yeah. racial wealth gap, right? Yep. How how do you measure, how's it going? <laughs> hey, how's it going? How do you measure that attempt and, and the efficacy of all your efforts? That's where that's the process we're in right now. We're actually partnering with a national research institute um, out of Washington, D.C., I think I can say it, um, the Urban Institute. We're working um, with them right now. And by the end of the year, Faith, we will, um, our plan is to have those key metrics of the things that we want to change um, right now, we are focused on just doing the work. We just, um, in addition to the owned initiative around home ownership that I talked about, um, that we just launched, we also launched the One More Job Small Business Initiative with those access advisors, and then we also um, just committed another twenty million dollars to community development financial institutions, which play a huge role for small businesses and being that third party um, that has the ability to lend patient capital to small businesses for those businesses that can't come to a U.S. bank um, and get a loan. These CDFIs are able to provide much needed capital, infrastructure, community, all those things that Jay talked about 
So we just committed another $20 million. But the point of it is, it's not about the investment. The point for us is mm-hmm. we've got to work with organizations like the Urban Institute to really get clear about what are the metrics that matter and how will we know if we've actually made the change that we set out to do. That's what we're calling this theory of change, um, faith that we'll be sharing in the early part of 2022. And you know every time I tell you that I'm going to come back with something, I actually do come back. And I think that's when you and I always laugh. So I'm going to have that for you in 2022, (laughs) and I promise I'll be back to talk about that too. Oh, you're going to have to have it for us both. But that when you first told me about that, Greg, it was back to what we were saying, Faith, about institutions, right? We wouldn't have the capacity as a young nonprofit to have access to that level of, of research and, and intel, uh, helping us understand how we can more effectively move the needle when we start to look at combating the wealth gap. But through our partner, U.S. Bank, we'll have access to that kind of to that kind of research that can help us fulfill our mission. Um, I'm excited about that, brother. I can't wait to see see the results of what you're able to dig up. Thank you, man. So are we. It's hard for me to believe that this is the first time you've laid eyes on each other. And oh, really? It is second yeah. time we've ever talked. The second time we've ever talked. You know, you, and you, you know, it just speaks to what um, shared vision yeah. can can mm. do to 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 create a connection. And I I just wanted to know. I mean, Jay, when when you were talking about what it's like at Rice day to day with with U.S. Bank folks on site, um, Greg looked so happy and, and, and almost like a proud dad, right, Greg? Like, um, That's fair, yeah. And I just kind of want to know from both of you, what's, what's the emotional experience of Greg, you, you learning what's going on on the ground at Rice and, and Jay, you're being able to, you know, put a face to, to someone who plays a part in in lifting rice to its highest potential. Mm. I mean, it's powerful for a couple of reasons for me. Um, one, Greg, I'm proud of you. Um, you know, our sound engineer happens to also be my cousin and he's a Clark Atlanta, you know, alum. And for me to say, hey, another Clark Atlanta alum is a C-suite leader of one of the largest banks in the country. I mean, you don't get to say that sentence that often, man. And so to be just proud of him before I knew him, before I had met him, um, and, and Jamie and Tara would always talk about Greg and you got to connect and you got to connect and you got to connect. From our first phone call, I pulled over in a parking lot because I think I was leaving a lecture at Emory University and I was in a parking lot so I wouldn't crash. And we had this connection, but I agree with you, Faith, because it was around us sharing a mission. Um, and he's never seen the Russell Center yet. You know, but there's this powerful urgency around these gaping holes that exist when you talk about wealth and opportunity. And for those of us that are passionate about trying to do something about it, do our part, I think there's a certain spiritual alignment that that happens uh, that goes way deeper than any kind of white paper or MOU. This is where I have to raise my hand and say, I don't know what an MOU is. Uh, memorandum of understanding. It's kind of like a partnership agreement. Thank, thank you very much. Got it. Please go ahead. Got it. Got it. Sorry. <laughs> so, it's so, Vulnerability. Sorry. Vulnerability. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm sorry I interrupted that beautiful flow, Greg. No, go no, ahead. I'm glad you did. I Because it gave me a minute to think that that was hard to follow. I, I, I would say, Jay, in return, that I'm grateful um, I'm grateful to have met you in, in the ways that we have. I'm grateful to be on this journey with you. And I, you know, Faith, the reason I was smiling the way that I was is I am extremely proud. And I think what I'm most proud of is, you know, this was something that Jay referred to in terms of Mr. Russell, Mr. Herman Russell, um, that many of the fruits of his labor and all of these things that are coming out uh, uh, as a result of his hard work and vision um, he never got to see. And I think anybody who does this work has that same sentiment. You know, much of the work that we're doing, the real benefit will come long after we're no longer here or certainly in these roles, the job that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I I sense that same spirit of selflessness in Jay and the work. And I didn't need to see the Russell Center to understand it was about, you know, I spent a lot of time in Atlanta. I know my mm-hmm. history and I know people who know the history and I, I you know, I, I get it. And when I meet somebody who I know understands the responsibility that we all carry, 
um, and the shoulders that we stand upon, I'm going to invest in them. Um, because so much of what we're doing and so much of the access commitment faith is not about, you know, the organizations that we invest in. I think what's different and what's really different that U.S. Bank is doing that I don't see a lot of others doing is we're investing in leaders. We're investing in people. And I think these people-based investments are what's really, really important. I believe in Jay Bailey and the vision that he has and the staff of the Russell, um, the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That, to me, is the message. Um, we've got to make human-based investments and people-based investments. Mm. And I'm so mm. proud of our team at Elevon and Jamie and Joe and Tara and, and everybody at Elevon for bringing this to us. And that's why I'm smiling the way I am, Faith. It just uh, It is a proud moment. And now our ancestors are smiling as well. Thank you both for leading with vulnerability and strength. I, I just feel lucky to, to listen to you all talk. I always learn so much. Thank you. Thank you, Faith. Oh, thank you, Faith, for bringing us together. Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.